And um, I just like to share this song because it, it kind of connects up with the message that I believe the Lord's laid on my heart for today. I boast not of works nor tell of good deeds for naught have I done to merit His grace all glory and praise shall rest upon Him so willing to die in my place and I will glory in the cross in the cross lest his suffering all be in vain I will weep no more for the cross that he bore but I will glory in the cross my trophy and crowns my robe stained with sin was all that I had to lay at his feet unworthy to eat from the table of life till love made provision for me and I will glory in the cross in the cross lest his suffering all be in vain I will weep no more for the cross that he bore but I will glory in the cross
Thank you, Tim. My goodness. I can't, you know, when you get somebody like that come in, you, you can't let them just sit. You need to, need to put them to work. <laughs> Acts chapter 18. Would you stand as we read the word of the Lord together, please? I'm going to begin reading at verse 1. Acts chapter 18, beginning at verse 1. Let's read together. After these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth. He found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working. For by trade, they were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads, I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And he settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Lord, open our hearts now that we may hear what the Spirit will say to us in the midst of the preaching. Apart from your anointing, this is nothing more than empty words. But if you will touch us and you will help us, our lives will be forever transformed. And this is what I pray for. I lift up other life-giving churches to you and I pray blessing upon them. I pray for our loved ones not yet walking in right relationship with you. I pray especially for sons and daughters who have wandered from the faith. And I ask you to draw them back to you so that not one of them is lost. I pray this in the only name that matters, the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. When the Apostle Paul first came to Corinth, it was a bustling city with a population of close to 200,000 people. Corinth was a very prosperous city. It was a busy place of commerce, trade, and travel. Corinth was also a raucous, immoral city, perhaps the most wicked city of its day. Most of us are familiar with the modern saying, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. <clears throat> Well, that could easily have been said and could have been the motto of Corinth. It was the Las Vegas of the Roman Empire. It was the place one would go to live it up, to indulge in sex, drink, 
and every other sensual pleasure. There was even a large Roman bath where one could go to sober up after a night of carousing. Corinth was the sitter for the worship of Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love. And as part of this worship, there was a temple just on the outskirts of the town dedicated to Aphrodite. Attached to this temple were a thousand so-called sacred prostitutes who would come down each evening to ply their trade in the streets of Corinth, all in the name of religion and worship. So prevalent and dominant was this feature of the city of Corinth that from the 5th century B.C. on, to Corinthianize, the verb to Corinthianize meant to be sexually immoral. It was to this immoral, wicked city that Paul came on his second and then again on his third missionary journey. It was here that he had one of his most productive and effective ministries. The verses we read at the beginning of the message give us a brief overview of Paul's ministry in this city. He began, as was his custom, by going to the synagogue and trying to persuade the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles to follow Jesus. When they rejected his message, he left the synagogue and went next door to the home of a man named Titius Justus, who had become a believer. As the ministry became more effective, even the leader of the synagogue, Crispus, along with all his household, became believers and made a public witness of their faith by being baptized. As an additional encouragement to Paul, the Lord spoke to him in a vision and said, don't be afraid to speak boldly in this place because I am with you. No one is going to attack you or harm you. Watch this, because I have many people in this city. And so Paul settled down in Corinth for about 18 months and a great church was established there through his preaching and teaching. Now think about that for a moment if you would. If you and I were to look at that city, I suspect the last thing we would see would be people who belong to the Lord. We would see drunks. We would see prostitutes. We would see businessmen trying to escape reality for a night of pleasure. We would see the vice and the immorality. But I doubt very seriously if we would see people who belong to the Lord. And this serves to remind me that the Lord sees things differently than we see them. When we look at the decline and the decay of our own society, it's easy for us to only see the problems. It's easy to focus on the evil in our world and despair of there being anything good. Well, that's just because we don't see things the way God sees them. In fact, may I just remind you that the Lord saw you differently than everybody else saw you. <laughs> when others looked at you, they may have seen a failure. They may have seen an addict. They may have seen someone voted least likely to succeed. They may have seen an outcast. They may have seen a social misfit. They may have seen an egregious sinner. But aren't you glad the Lord didn't see you that way? Aren't you glad the Lord looks at you differently from the way everybody else looks at you? Praise God. Our text tells us Paul spent a year and six months teaching the word of God to the people of Corinth, but it doesn't tell us any details of his message in the book of Acts. To get the substance of his message, you need to look at the letter he wrote back to the church in that city. In chapter 6 of the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul reminds the Corinthians of how others viewed them and of their former condition, 
when he says in verses 9 through 11, or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But, aren't you glad that word is there? But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Now, now that's quite a list. Those are, watch this, those are the people about whom God said, I have many people in this city. Hmm. Those words could just as easily have been written about our city. They could have been written about our nation. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. This is the condition of the people in the world to whom the church, our church, has been sent. The account in Acts gives a brief overview of the ministry Paul had in Corinth. But when you look at that first letter he wrote back to that church, you find out something about the message he was preaching and teaching. In the first five verses of chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, the apostle writes, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. See, Paul came to Corinth just after he had been in the city of Athens. It was in Athens, you remember, that he went toe-to-toe with some of the best philosophical minds of the day and proclaimed to them the message of the unknown God. Now that he's come to Corinth, he says, I didn't come to you the same way I approached the Athenians. I didn't come with lofty words. I didn't come with superiority of speech. I didn't come with enticing words of men's wisdom. He says, I came to you in weakness and fear and much trembling. I'm not surprised. Remember, Paul had come into Europe in response to a Macedonian vision, but in every town he's entered to proclaim the gospel, he's been met with persecution. Everywhere he's gone, a riot has broken out. He's tired. He's wondering what in the world is going to happen to him in this wicked place if he starts talking about Jesus. Still, he knows that Jesus is the answer for the longing that is being expressed by the excesses of this sinful city. Jesus is the answer for the emptiness in the hearts of men and women that drives them to overindulgence. Jesus is the answer for the loneliness and the fear and the anxiety. So what Paul does is he takes his message and he boils it down to basics. He says, I'm not going to try to win the debate. I'm not going to try to craft the argument in a way that's going to dazzle your intellect. I'm not going to expend my energy developing philosophical arguments. Instead, I'm going to just tell you the solution to the problem you have. I'm going to give you the answer to the question and the deepest longing of your soul. I'm going to give you the gospel proclaimed under the anointing of the Spirit. I'm going to combine the power of the gospel with the power of the Spirit. And when you cut away all the excess and you trim away all the frills at the heart, at the core of the gospel message is simply this, the cross. 
the cross. That was the message Paul proclaimed to these wicked, debauched Corinthians. This is the message the church is called to proclaim to a world that has run off the rails today. And this is the message I have come to give you in this service. Without the cross, you don't have the gospel, the good news. Without the cross, you may have a good service organization, but you don't have the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Without the cross, we may generate attention in the marketplace. We may attract crowds to our events. We may have a slick professional appearance, but without the cross, we have form without power. Without the cross, we have people without the presence of God. Without the cross, we have buildings and budgets without a foundation for our faith. If we are going to have a gospel that is any gospel at all, and the very center must be the cross of Jesus Christ. As you read through the letter Paul wrote to this Corinthian church some years later, you find they had gotten away from this truth and from placing the cross at the center of their message. In the first chapter of the first letter, Paul addresses three problems that had crept into the church. And if we aren't careful, we'll find ourselves guilty of the same problems. And I tell you, if we go down that path, we will lose our relevance to this modern world. Paul first addresses the problem of distorting the message of the cross. In verse 12 of chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. See, this is a divided congregation with one group saying they believe what Paul said, another what Apollos said, and so on. Those who said they followed Paul were taking the message of grace that he preached, grace, mercy, and forgiveness. They were taking it to an extreme. They were frolicking in all the liberty to which they could stretch his message of grace. They were saying, you know, now that we've come to Jesus, we can live any way we want. All we have to do is confess our sin and God will forgive. Grace is there and life is fun. They took Paul's message to a distorted extreme. You probably know people like that today. There's no sense of shame or guilt because once upon a time they prayed a prayer and now they live any way they want. I mean, it's all right. God forgives. It's a distortion of a powerful truth of grace and liberty. Second group said they followed Apollos of Alexandria. The tradition in Alexandria was to allegorize the gospel, making it mystical and ethereal. They found all sorts of subsurface meanings to every jot and tittle in the Old Testament. Their teaching grew weird as it was stretched beyond recognition. Those who said they followed Cephas, that's Peter, they were the legalists. They loved any emphasis that brought back a more legalistic view of Christianity and the keeping of old traditions and laws. They were the rule makers. And finally, there were the ones who said they just followed Christ. I've known a few of those. <laughs> they will quickly tell you they don't belong to any particular church. They don't look to any particular pastor or spiritual leader. They just follow the leading of the Lord. After talking about personalities, Paul then speaks in verses 13 through 16 about baptism. What he's really saying is that these groups who claim to follow these various individuals are forming solid movements behind these personalities. So in order to correct this, he says in verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, that the cross of Christ should not be made void. Here's the point. 
allowing the gospel to become attached to a human personality, allowing it to become divided into subgroups of theological followings, allowing the gospel to center in some person, whether it be Paul or Peter or Apollos or or some weird view of Christ, is to remove the cross from the center of the gospel. And I want to tell you, this is a practice that has continued right up until the present day. See, we have all these movements in the church world today. We have the word of faith movement. We have the healing movement. We have the prosperity movement. We have the spiritual gifts movement. We have seeker-sensitive and seeker-friendly movements. We have the end times emphasis movement. All these have their different leaders and preachers that are out front, and they all have devoted followers. Somehow, we have fallen into the trap of the Corinthians. If we'll just elevate these charismatic personalities, if we'll elevate their style of ministry, if we will elevate their unique message, then we'll attract a lot of people and Christianity will be more palatable to the culture. And the great temptation of our modern generation is to diminish and replace the cross with all sorts of glitzy things that play well to the masses. But the truth of the matter is the church has a mission. The one central mission of the church is to win the lost. The only way God has provided for men and women to be saved is not through prosperity or positive confession or embracing the cultural norms or trying to find out the identity of the Antichrist and the timing of the end of the world. The only means of salvation is through the cross of the Lord Jesus. God's way is the way of the cross. The cross is his way of showing his love for the world. The power of the gospel is not in the blessings of God upon our lives. The power of the gospel is not in what the church will do for me. The power of the gospel is not in the emotional highs we experience in an exciting worship service. The power of the gospel is not in being made to feel comfortable in my lifestyle. The power of the gospel is a dirty, rotten, filthy cross which everybody hates. That's the power of the gospel. The Corinthians distorted the message of the gospel. Then they tried to push the cross into the background by downplaying the message of the cross. In verse 18 of chapter 1, Paul writes, For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. During, During this time in Corinth, one of the things people did for entertainment and sport was engage in debating and oratory and philosophy. The Corinthians would go anywhere to hear a great speaker. What he said made absolutely no difference. How he said it was what mattered. They would listen to these speakers, but if a speaker got to the end of his presentation and the arguments didn't fully come together philosophically, the Corinthians called the speech foolish or silly. And that's the charge leveled against the message of the cross. 
The Corinthians weren't comfortable with the message of the cross because when they talked about the cross in the marketplace, they were laughed off the pavement. None of us wants to be thought of as dumb or foolish, but that's exactly the reaction of the people who have not yet embraced the message of the cross. Nobody wants to hear about a man hanging on a cross, bleeding and humiliated, dying for sin. Nobody wants to think about the injustice he suffered. Nobody wants to think about the pain and the agony he endured. As a result, we have a hard time thinking the only thing we can do for our eternal salvation is to believe Jesus is the Son of God and then accept his atoning work of the cross as the final payment for our sin. We have a hard time with that. So instead, we talk about what we have to do for our salvation. We talk about living good, clean, moral lives. We talk about involvement in religious activity. We talk about sacrificing personal possessions. And anytime we don't quite measure up to the standard, we conveniently get ourselves off the hook by saying, oh, but God knows I'm only human. Here's the deal. Anytime we focus on what we do, anytime we focus on our religious activity, no matter how good that activity may be, we wind up downplaying the message of the cross. Anytime we excuse our failures, anytime we justify our shortcomings, we diminish the power of the cross. Whenever the cross is front and center where people can see it for what it truly is, then you're going to always find them falling into one of two groups. The first group who see the cross is made up of those who are perishing. The meaning of this word isn't just those who are going to ultimately perish somewhere out there in eternity. This word talks about an ongoing process. It describes those who are perishing day by day by day. What that means is if you're without Jesus if the cross has not touched your life, then you are in a state of perishing. You're dying a little bit every day. It's no wonder your life is in a mess. You can tell if someone falls into this category of perishing by the way they react to the cross. They call the cross foolish. They can't believe salvation is really as simple as just believing in Jesus and his cross. It's foolish. They're perishing. The other group is made up of those who are being saved. And this is also written in a continuous sense. I, I, am I doing all right today? Everybody's still in a boat? I'm, I'm, okay, just, y'all just got real quiet. I'm just going to pretend that you're listening, okay? Being saved is written in a continuous sense. What that means is that a person who has embraced the cross is not only saved at a particular point in time when they repented and surrendered their life to Jesus, but it means we are also constantly in the state of being saved. For people who are being saved, their response to the cross is, I can't live without the cross. This is the power of God. It is the sum and substance of my spirituality and of everything I am. See, the difference is that the perishing think of the cross as foolishness and they reject it as too bloody or too easy or not marketable. 
The saved think of the cross as their only hope, the power of God, and they embrace the cross with all of its ramifications for life and living. The culture in which we live prides itself on its advancements in learning and knowledge. We take pride in our technology and our great intellect. That's what was happening in Corinth. That's why Paul quotes from the prophet Isaiah and tells him God is going to take the wisdom of the wise and utterly shatter it. He's going to take the intelligence and frustrate it. Now, that doesn't mean Christianity is anti-intellectual. God gave you a brain. Some of you will be glad to know that. And he expects you to use it. Christianity isn't anti-intellectual. Instead, it's calling into question the men and women who think they have such brain power they don't need God. If you listen to the professors and the people in positions of power in our modern culture as they take aim at the basic beliefs of Christianity, if you spend your time reading their literature and listening to their speeches, you'll get intimidated and you'll begin to doubt You'll begin to wonder if all this talk about the cross is really necessary. You'll be overwhelmed by people who think they know better. What you need to know is that every time somebody starts out to prove the Bible false and God is a myth and Jesus didn't resurrect from the dead, every time we have some technological breakthrough, every time we make a scientific discovery, every time honest research is done, the people come away with only one conclusion. They cannot disprove the Bible. Instead, every discovery only confirms what the Bible has been telling us all along. The problem isn't the Bible is inaccurate. The problem is we haven't yet gotten as smart as the God who wrote the Bible. Listen, don't you buy into the so-called wisdom of this age. Don't you swallow the line of the humanists and the secularists and the atheists and the agnostics of our day. Don't you follow the ways of those who put their trust in reason and in human intellect. God is going to show the wisdom of men and women to be rank foolishness. It's time we as a church of the Lord Jesus took a fresh bold stand in the midst of a culture that is wholly spinning out of control and said, let God be true and every man a liar. It's time we settled in our minds once and for all that heaven and earth shall pass away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And God's word to you today is this. You must be born again. Today is the day of salvation. You've played around the edges too long. You've made every excuse you can make. You've tried other paths, and they've all turned out to be dead ends. God loves you and has done everything to keep you from perishing. But when you refuse the way he provided, you're going to end up in destruction. Some of you right there now, some of you in this house, some of you watching online right now, that's where you are. Some of you are a bundle of tangled, contradictory emotions. Some of you are racked with guilt. And the word of the Lord to you is, turn around while there is time. Embrace the cross. It's your only hope. Do it today. To the perishing, the cross is foolishness. But to the saved, the cross is the power of God. 
Finally, last one. Y'all got time for one more? Okay. Nope, just one. Don't get me started. Finally, I want you to see the Corinthians push the cross to the background by displacing the message of the cross. Chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, verses 22 and 23, Paul writes, For indeed, Jews ask for a sign, and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to Jews a stumbling block, and to Gentiles foolishness. See, in Corinth, the real champion was the person who could persuade other people through the force of argument. You know, in those days, people went to an amphitheater to hear a persuasive speech, just like we might go today to listen to a, to a great musical concert or to, or to watch a great athlete perform. The Corinthians were saying, the problem with our gospel is that it doesn't persuade well in the marketplace. We can't get people to give in to our arguments. They think the cross is dumb. To which the apostle responds, the essence of the gospel is not persuasion. No one is ever persuaded to the cross. The only people who will ever find the cross to make sense in their lives are those who are called. The essence of calling is in the word convicting. It's that conviction that made some of you uncomfortable just a minute ago when I began telling you the Lord says you must be born again. You must turn away from going your own way and go God's way. You must do it today because today is the day of salvation. It's the conviction and the calling of the Lord that makes you uncomfortable when I talk like that. Some of you started squirming. Don't look at your neighbor. I'm talking to you. I'm not talking to the person beside you. People who are called are those who suddenly wake up to the fact they are nothing more than sinners in need of grace and forgiveness. See, as long as you believe you're not accountable for your sinfulness, as long as you have no sense of being separated from God, as long as you think you have plenty of time to get things straightened out, the cross is going to seem silly and foolish. We have all these explanations for why things are messed up in this world and in our lives. Yeah. It's our lack of education. It's poverty. It's racism. It's white privilege. It's oppression by the government or by the church or by some other institution. It's abuse. The, the list is practically endless of the things we want to cast off on. And now before you jump on my case and send me some nasty mails that I'm not going to read anyway... <laughs> I know people carry deep-seated wounds that need help and healing. And I'm not trying to make light of any of those things. I'm not being dismissive of those whatsoever. What I'm trying to help you understand is this. At the root of the maladies and problems and ills of our society, you find nothing any more glamorous than plain, old-fashioned sin. And you don't take care of sin through better education, through economic handouts, or through additional legislation. The only remedy for sin is the cross. Apart from the cross, you are lost. 
Apart from the cross, you are lost. When you are lost, there is only one thing you need, and that's a savior. You don't need rehabilitation, you need redemption. You don't need coping skills, you need repentance. The cross is the place of help. The cross is the place of hope. The cross is the place of healing. And you won't get those things anywhere else besides the cross. I'm coming up on 40 years of being a lead pastor now. And in that time, I've found the only people who will listen to the message of the cross are the people who have come to the end of their rope and are desperate. When people know they are lost, then they'll listen to the message of the cross. Nobody will ever buy the message of the cross because they've been persuaded by the strength of my arguments. Nobody ever got argued into the kingdom of heaven. Nobody ever got debated into salvation. People who receive the message of the cross are those who have been broken and shattered and hurt and wounded, and they have discovered that having come to the end of themselves, nothing else works. And when they come to Jesus, they discover God has taken what the world considers stupid and foolish, the cross, and through it has spoken a word of hope. I read some time ago the story of an English preacher in the late 1800s who became the pastor of the great Plymouth Church in Brooklyn, a man by the name of Charles Berry. In that story, Berry described how he came to faith in Jesus. He said there had been a time in his early ministry when he preached a very thin gospel. Really, he said it was no gospel at all. Just like these Corinthians he looked upon Jesus as merely a noble teacher, but not as a divine redeemer. Being a pastor for him at that point was just a vocation. Late one night during his first pastorate, as he sat in his cozy study, there came a knock. He opened the door and found a typical Lancashire girl with a shawl over her head and clogs on her feet. Are you a minister, she asked. When he, asked, when he said yes, she went on breathlessly, you must come with me quickly. I want you to get my mother in. Thinking it was a case of some drunken mother out in the street, Barry said, you must go and get a policeman. No, said the girl, my mother is dying and you must come and get her into heaven. Barry got dressed and followed her a mile and a half through lonely streets in the night. Arriving at the humble apartment, he knelt at the woman's side and began telling her how good and kind Jesus was and how he's come to show us how to love. The desperate, desperate woman cut him off. Mister, she cried, that's no use for the likes of me. I'm a sinner. I've lived my life. Can't you tell me of someone who can have mercy upon me and save my poor soul? Barry said, I stood there in the presence of a dying woman and I realized I had nothing to tell her. In the midst of sin and death, I had no message. He said, in order to bring something to that dying woman, I leaped back to my mother's knee, to my cradle faith. And I started telling her the story of the cross and of a Christ who is able to save to the uttermost. 
Tears of joy began to run down the woman's cheeks. Now you're getting it, she said. Now you're helping me. (laughs) Charles Berry concluded the story by saying, I got her in, and blessed be God, I got in myself. Here's what I know. One of these days, you will come to the conclusion that you have to get in. You will have exhausted all the other sources of living a full life. You will have exhausted the relative success in your vocation. You'll have gone the marriage and family route, or you will have lived the high-flying single lifestyle. You'll have played the whole game, and it won't be enough. In that moment, whenever it comes, whether it comes under pressure or stress or simply in a moment of dramatic insight, you're going to discover that the marketplace, which has the answers to all types of questions, cannot answer the most important question of all. How do you help a person become intimate and permanent with God? At that moment, you'll have to come to the cross. No personality will be able to help you. There will be no glitzy message. It will simply be the story of Jesus who came out of heaven, suffered in an ugly way, and died with the scum of the world. The response at the end will not be a great intellectual conclusion. It will simply be a cry to God, either aloud or in the silence of your heart, a cry that says, Oh, Lord God, save me. And then, because of the cross, new life will begin.